Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, a weird alien spaceship had landed on the planet. As our family approached it, they were unaware that two strange pairs of eyes were even then watching their every move. I'll go on ahead. You cover me, Don. Do you expect danger? Well, let's say I don't believe in taking chances. Will, you stay back here with Dr. Smith. I wonder what kind of horrible creature lurks inside that spaceship. Are you cold? Why do you ask? Because you're shivering. As a matter of fact, I am a bit chilled. Shall we uh, withdraw over the ridge so we'll be out of the wind? I guess it's all right. Come along. Oh, what do you make of this? They must have been little green men. Oh, very funny. Oh, this hammock. That looks human enough. What's this? A.P. Tucker. How could A.P. Tucker be? And what would he be doing on a ship like this? John, the door! If you're warm enough, we'd better get back now, Dr. Smith. In a moment, dear boy, when it's hardly one's best fighting trim with shoe blades, in a trice I shall be ready to fight my weight in tigers. Oh, dear. <sighs> now then... Observe closely, dear boy. Hands, feet, brain, all working together in the closest cooperation. Lead with the left, cross with the right. Dance away. Jab, jab. Now for the finale. A left hook. A stiff uppercut. That, that is you, isn't it, Will? Answer me, my dear boy. That is you, isn't it? Welcome back, folks, for episode 18 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 18th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Sky Pirate. Are you ready to walk the plank, Kurt? Aye, Captain. I mean, uh, Colonel. <laughs> Good. So let's hit the production notes before we begin with the story. This was 49-year-old Carrie Wilbur's third script for Lost in Space. 
We both enjoyed his teleplay adaptation of Shimon Winselberg's story for There Were Giants in the Earth. His second assignment was titled The Curious Galactics. Not much is known about that one, other than he wrote three drafts, but ultimately it was never produced. Wilbur then turned his pen to this adventure about a space pirate who pays an unexpected visit to our castaways. Wilbur's script for Giants contains some of the first obvious efforts to soften Dr. Smith from a murderous villain to a more foppish foil, and certainly this story takes his character farther down that path. There are a couple of significant scripted scenes that were deleted or shortened for time that would have smoothed over some obvious plot holes, which I'll try to mention when we get to them. The 56-year-old Soby Martin is back for his fifth episode directing Lost in Space. He's still on old Uncle Irwin's good boy list, and he turns in another serviceable directing effort with this one. In fact, I'd say this one has more than a few nicely crafted camera angles and cutaway shots, so Soby must have been taking his Geritol this week. Oh, wow, Geritol. That's a blast from the past. (laughs) I guess in today's vernacular, it would be limitless. Mm. The pill that activates the unused 90% of your brain. (laughs) If the remaining 10% can believe that. Oh, yeah, Geritol. I thought you'd like that one. This episode was filmed from January 4th through the 12th, 1966, seven days. It aired on January 26th, 1966, and it did get a summer repeat on June 6th, 1966. All the regular characters are featured, although there was a note from Irwin Allen complaining that there's not much for Judy and Penny to do in this episode, other than look nice, I suppose. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I have to ask, do you think that he was complaining because deep down he was a feminist at heart and concerned about women's rights, or was he just kind of being cheap and feeling like he wasn't getting his money's worth? (laughs) (laughs) It could have been. It could have been either one, I suppose. They were on salary. I want him to talk. That reminds me of one of those uh, Hollywood uh, producers, or actually, I guess he was one of the guys from Metro Goldwyn Mayer. And when he would go into the the place where all the writers were supposed to be writing, he complained and say, "Where's the sound of the typewriters? I'm paying for you guys to type." <laughs> He didn't want to waste any time to think about what they were going to write. Right. He just wanted to hack in a way. Keep that sausage factory running, right? Guest starring in the role of Captain Alonzo P. Tucker is the 37-year-old Albert Salmi. With a career that lasted from the 50s through the 80s, Salmi would end up with nearly 200 movie and TV roles. Typically cast as an outdoorsman or bandit, he was well-suited for this role where he was actually doing a takeoff on British actor Robert Newton's portrayal of Long John Silver in the 1950 Disney classic Treasure Island. And I found a fun YouTube video that I'll link to in the show notes that documents how Robert Newton more or less invented that pirate way of speaking that has now become the conventional trope until today, as evidenced, for example, by the Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise. Wow. Shiver me timbers. Mm. He thinks I'll have to check that one out unless I miss a worthy YouTube tribute. Arg. <laughs> No, it is kind of interesting because we just think, you know, that's how pirates talk, right? It's, it's kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it all came back to that, it you know. Did. It's funny how you can trace all that stuff back, too. You know, they have entire groups of people who do nothing but study linguistics, and they apparently have done more to figure out the genealogy of humanity following language than they have actually doing the chromosome. Mm. But in this case, you have it all on TV, so you can actually pinpoint it. It must be a kind of fascinating work. Yeah, well, 
Well, it is a cool little video. I would recommend it. Apparently, the producers liked Salmi as a pirate because after finishing filming This Lost in Space on January 12th, he showed up back on the Fox lot the next morning for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, where he played a different pirate in the episode titled Dead Men's Doubloons. And also, he would reprise his role as Captain Tucker in the later second season Lost in Space episode Treasure of the Lost Planet. Now, the voice actor that played Tucker's robot parrot, Nick, is not credited, and I couldn't find any info on who it was online anywhere. If someone has that secret, please let us know, because I'm curious. Perhaps that was Erwin. Remember when we said Erwin might have been the bloop? Ah, yeah. You know, I was thinking about that unsubstantiated rumor that you made the other day that Erwin had provided the voice of the bloop, and after long and serious deliberation... I came to the conclusion that your surprising allegation based on no facts other than hearsay evidence. <laughs> and the conclusion, the verdict is, wait for it, yeah. guilty. Ah. Guilty. And here's why. Irwin had to provide the voice of the bloop because if he had done otherwise, he had let someone else do it. He would have had to pay the actor for it every single time they appeared in the episode doing the bloop. I mean, you didn't have to pay him for every time they said bloop, but every single episode in which they played the bloop, you know, because mm. that's it's like the, the theme song. Every time it comes on, you're going to have to pay for it. So even though it's the same piece of tape and wasn't re-recorded, that would have driven Uncle Irwin insane knowing he was paying for that every single time. So he had to do it by himself. I, I just think that's his personality. Case closed. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on board. Uh, Pretty smart of him, I think, you yeah, know, honestly. it is. I'm surprised he didn't do more voiceovers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the plot now. The teaser for Act 1 starts as usual with the narrator catching us up from last week. And actually it's interesting because I noticed they cut out almost two minutes of footage from that cliffhanger. And that kind of makes sense since we've already noted this episode was timing out long. This one starts out showing us the men and Will already at the small alien ship the morning after the robot had warned the castaways of an approaching spaceship which landed about a half a mile away with two non-terrestrial entities on board. They come across this small capsule-like vessel, and this one has a large watertight submarine hatch on it. It looks pretty small for two human-sized people in it, don't you think, Kurt? Well, actually, I was thinking it was vastly oversized for non-human-sized creatures like, say, a parrot? Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> It is different looking from Traveling Man or the dog's capsule from the mutant episode, and it's not the diving bell, so it appears to be a new creation from the prop department designed by Bob Kinoshita. One piece of the ship I do recognize is the flashing lighted power ring from the bottom of the Jupiter 2 full-size mock-up, and we saw it last week as the Keeper's monster pit. Ah, good call. Okay, so that was the blinking lights from the Keeper's monster pit ring. But can you go back a little bit? Uh, I want to ask you about a word that you said. You said that the ship appears to be a creation of Bob Konoshita. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, because he's okay. he's credited as the art director, so he usually gets the credit to design things. Well, we've been tripped up by that appears to be assumption before because we mistakenly stated earlier that Bob had designed the invaders from the fifth dimension spaceship, but he actually denied that. In one of your interviews, I, one that hasn't aired yet, but with the scholar of the Irwin Allen archives, Frederick Hodges, he said it was actually the costume design gentleman who designed that classic ship, uh, Paul Zespa 
Nuvich, was that how it's, how it's pronounced? Uh, Zestanevich? Yeah, it's a hard one. It's Zestanevich, I think. But I could... Yeah, it's even worse than Kirsteiner. I have a hard time. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a great interview. Everybody could look forward to hearing that. But the point is, do we know that Bob designed that ship? Or could we have another similar assumption where perhaps actually someone else, maybe even the same guy, you know, Paul, from the that did the invader ship designed it as well? Do we know that Bob did it? Did it? No, I don't. I that was that's why I said appears, and it's a great point you make, and you rightly point out, as uh, Frederick Hodges said, you know, he didn't actually do all of the work. So um, wow, I did see online that Bob actually did a lot of the uh, rating of the Fox prop department. So many times when we're crediting Irwin for recycling all this stuff, I think he may have a kindred spirit in Bob. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, they were they were cutting corners, and yeah. that's where they did it a lot. Yeah, the price is right. Anyway, John wants to get a closer look at that ship. Smith appears distressed and asks John, Do you expect danger? And the professor pulls his pistol from his holster and says he's taking no chances. Don does the same. John orders Will and Dr. Smith to stand back at a distance. When Professor Robinson indicates the coast is clear, he motions for Don to follow, and they slowly open that hatch and climb inside. There were some interesting sound effects for that ship. It kind of reminded me of the inside of the Batcave. Well, anyway, walking into that ship did seem kind of like a risky move to me. What did you think, Kurt? Yeah, well, I mean, they might have tried at least knocking first, you know. <laughs> yeah. If I encounter an alien spacecraft anytime soon, barging inside isn't going to be my first welcoming move, but, you know, yeah. I can just tell you that much. That's just me. Yeah, I felt the same. But anyway, it moved the plot along, I suppose, so. Then again, I don't have one of those cool laser pistols in my hand, so who knows. Yeah. I also noted, speaking of the laser pistols, Will has one, but not Dr. Smith. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they're not stupid now, are they? Right. They're getting to know Smith pretty well. Yes. While the professor and the major venture inside the ship for a look, a terrified Dr. Smith, teeth chattering, suggests that he and Will withdraw behind the ridge to escape that chilly breeze. But of course, we would want young William to catch cold from the draft now, would we? (laughs) Uh, Back in the capsule, John and Don are examining it, trying to figure out where it comes from. And the inside of that ship is obviously a lot bigger than the outside. Maybe it's got some of that fifth dimension mojo working for it. By the way, in this case, the inside of that ship is not one of those blacked-out limbo sets. It's actually part of the flying sub-interior from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So now we know why it has that submarine hatch on the outside. Uh Of course, it's all dressed up with some pirate maps and a hammock that is stenciled with lettering that says A.P. Tucker. Yeah, that was weird. But, you know, did you notice that the majority of the language displayed within that ship was like some sort of foreign Klingonese or something? That's right. You know, I, and, then, and then the only thing that's in English is the name on on the hammock. That seemed kind of weird. It did, but that was a good catch because uh, it is subtle, but it's true, yeah. The music is telling us that something bad could be brewing here as John asks Don what he makes of it. And Don replies, they must be little green men, which John says is very funny. He also wonders, as we do, who A.P. Tucker is and what would he be doing with a ship like this. While they're distracted, though, suddenly the hatch closes, trapping them inside. Uh-oh. Oh, damn that cold draft. It blew the iron hatch shut and locked it, even without spinning the hand reel. It's amazing how that strong that wind is. Next, we cut back to Will on the other side of the ridge. He's watching Dr. Smith as he jogs in place to get the blood flowing. And then the doctor starts doing a little shadow boxing to raise his courage. Will thinks they should get back to the others, but Smith says, 
In a moment, dear boy, once hardly in one's best fighting trim with chill blains, in a thrice I shall be ready to fight my weight in tigers. Mm. <laughs> now Will's getting tired of this because unnoticed by Dr. Smith, he gets up and walks out of the scene while Dr. Smith continues with his drills. As we near the climax of the teaser, the camera moves in closer on Smith's feet, and then we pick up a strange shadow creeping across the ground in his direction. The camera slowly pans up to a close-up on Dr. Smith's face, just as he sees the shadow as well. He freezes, afraid, afraid to raise his head, and asks, Is that you, Will? Answer me, my dear boy. That is you, isn't it? <laughs> he gets no response, so he slowly lifts his head up for a peek and then erupts in screaming horror at the sight of... Ah! <laughs> the sight of whatever it is he's facing. Well, this causes Will to stop, turn around, draw his laser pistol, and run back towards the sound of the screams. And that's when the camera cuts up to this really bizarre up-angle shot of this growling, arguing figure standing on top of a rock, aiming what appears to be a very large space-age ray rifle gun at the good doctor. This causes Smith to faint. He collapses to the ground, and as we go to credits, we're back up on a close-up of the grinning sky pirate, who we can now see has what appears to be a robotic parrot perched on his shoulder. Uh, yeah, I think some viewers may have felt a little cheated by that parrot on his shoulders because in the teaser, it formed a big round shadow creating the dark silhouette of apparently a two-headed monster on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out to be this thin little parrot that couldn't possibly have formed that shadow. So it was a cheap trick, but it worked and it made me envision a giant skunk cabbage monster all week long waiting for this episode only to be... You know, get the last bait and switch with the hokey parrot instead. Well, this scene is setting the stage for what features to be quite a way out adventure, Kurt. But we'll have to wait until we get back from the break to see if Dr. Smith is doomed or if Will can rescue him in the nick of time. Yeah, will he be eaten alive by a hungry tin-plated parrot? The suspense is killing me. <laughs> from the opening titles and now as the credits are still flashing by we're following Will Robinson pistol drawn in a nice tracking shot as he's carefully working his way over and around some rocks towards the scene of the commotion he stops partially covered by a rock and trains his weapon on the strange visitor who's standing over the prostrate Dr. Smith for a second I wondered if that visitor had already done something more serious than startle Smith because he's lying dead as a coffin nail face down in the sand and Will shouts to the pirate don't try it whoever you are surprised but creeping closer to Will, he replies, Oh, you wouldn't shoot old Tucker with that thing, would ya? And he doesn't look scared at all to me. Will asks what happened to Dr. Smith, and the pirate says, He's not sure. That delicate kind of cuss Smith just fainted at the sight of old Tucker. Will warns the pirate to stay back, but Tucker pours on the charm. You don't think old Tucker's gonna hurt you, do you? Ask anyone about Alonzo P. Tucker. Now we know what the AP stands for. Why, he ain't got a bit of harm in him. Oh, you know, th this is reminding me a lot of Hapgood. You know, when he first appeared, and the way that he was just like, he was unintimidated by the laser, and it's just mm -hmm. pouring on the charm. Yeah. Well, I think his charm would have worked on me as a 10-year-old boy, because although he came across as a little bit dangerous looking, there was something endearing about his manner. It seems to be working on Will, because he momentarily lets his guard down as he continues to interrogate Tucker, who confirms that he is the one from the alien ship they discovered. And now old Tucker never said he wasn't, did he now? And that's when Tucker lets out a fierce two-fingered whistle... <whistles> and the parrot's eyes light up, 
all of that surprises Will. Then his laser pistol flies right out of his hand and into the pirate's grasp. That was a neat trick. Yeah, it was. And you know what? It reminded me a lot, and I suspect that maybe the person may have been inspired by this scene. It reminded me a lot of that character from Guardians of the Galaxy. What was his name? Yondu? Yondu, yeah, I think yeah, that's Yeah, he would right. whistle and, the, and that arrow would, you know, obey mm-hmm. his commands and stuff like that. It was very reminiscent of that. But it bears mentioning that Tucker here is not your proverbial pirate. He may sound like a proverbial pirate, but he's not dressed in a scary way. I mean, he's wearing striped uh, stripes on his arms. He has no patch over his eye. He literally has powder blue ribbons in his beard. We can't tell that in this black and white episode, but later on in the second season, we'll notice this is, these are light little blue bows tied in his beard. So right. he's not looking very intimidating. No. I mean, I think the the most pirate thing he's got going for him is the parrot on his shoulder, and, and he's got one of those gold rings in his ear. It's kind of a, a bizarre combination of his costume and everything else, but he's certainly got the pirate accent. Yes. Uh, well, the tables have been turned on Will, and Tucker has the draw on him. He calls the boy down from the rock so he can get a better look at him, and he declares that he looks and acts like a scrubby boy, but he bets he isn't, and that causes Will to defiantly agree, you bet I'm not. And Tucker asks his parrot, who he calls Nick, okay, that settles that question, to give him a report on just who it is he's captured. And then Nick replies in this funny parrot voice (laughs) with a very hard-to-follow answer about things either appearing to be what they are or aren't. And This whole answer confused me and it confused Will and Tucker, and he tells the little metal bird to be quiet and tries to smack him, but before he can, it pops (laughs) off his shoulder in the nick of time again, so to speak, and reappears on a nearby rock and informs the annoyed Tucker that he was merely quoting Epictetus on the nature of things. And I had no idea who that was, but apparently Epictetus was a Greek philosopher who extolled the virtues of wisdom, which strikes me as a little more than ironic that Carrie Wilbur would have the parrot giving this quote. Now, I can't remember this, Kurt. Did the parrot in Treasure Island, was he kind of a smart aleck too? Do you remember that at all? Uh, no, I don't. But I, I thought that the parrot was, you know, uh, almost nonsensical. It was more of a pet than it was a, a companion talking. But, you know, it's been yeah. a long, long time. Yeah, I don't remember that either. But anyway, in this case, he is kind of a little bit of a smart aleck. Well, he's a computer robot, so it it makes a lot more sense. I mean, real parrots, they repeat things, but they can't really think. Yeah, that's true. But they do say some things (laughs) that will surprise you from time to time. Oh, yeah, they always do have that ability to say the worst possible thing at the worst possible time, you know. (laughs) My mother-in-law stinks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Tucker promises Nick that he won't do any violence to his little helper, and then Nick pops back on his shoulder where he should be. Now, we got some nice close-ups during this exchange of both Captain Tucker and the robot parrot, Nick. What did you think of their appearance? Well, honestly, at this point in the episode, I was not very impressed. We we had just transitioned from that classic The Keeper with the shadow promise of the two-headed monster instead got this imitation Mr. Krabs meat from SpongeBob SquarePants. So I was bracing myself for a painful 50 minutes. Although, spoiler alert, that attitude soon changes. I will say this much for the robot parrot, though. Having been the owner of a real parrot-type bird, which was actually a cockatoo named Coco, 
I have mm-hmm. to envy the fact that Tucker's parrot never actually pooped on his shoulders like real birds do. <laughs> or at very worst, you know, he might leak some oil or something. But uh. Yes, I'll go along with you there. It, it wasn't super impressive at this point. Although the design of that little Nick was kind of art deco, so I thought it was somewhat clever. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of that uh, Ray Harryhausen owl in Clash of the Titans. It did kind of remind me of that. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. but They had the exact same eyes. He probably use the same (laughs) prop and built over it yeah who knows now that nick is back on tucker's shoulder we'll ask tucker how does nick do all that popping and tucker simply says that nick's an esper and they can do things like that and i never heard of that word either so i looked it up and it says it's a person with supernatural powers i guess it's kind of a take on esp or something like that an esper tucker explains that in fact it was nick that got will's gun away from him nick confirms for tucker that will is in fact a human boy from the planet earth and that's very good news to tucker because as he tells will he's been a lot of places where things aren't at all what they appear to be will then introduces himself and names the still prostrate Dr. Zachary Smith, who, hearing his name, finally raises up and greets Tucker with a timid, How do you do? But this causes Tucker to go into a rage at the no-good yellow-bellied Smith pretending to be knocked out and eavesdropping. Tucker orders Smith on his feet, but Dr. Smith remains frightened and on the ground until Tucker yells that he's losing his patience with Zack. Oh, Zack indeed. Mm, That got him on his feet. (laughs) Will says he thought Smith was hurt or something, but he informs the boy that he was merely feigning injury until the right moment presented itself to, well, uh, never mind, he'll explain later. Tucker then demands that they tell him exactly where he is, which surprises Dr. Smith, who asks, don't you know? Apparently not. But Tucker doesn't believe that they don't know either, and he threatens Smith with the laser pistol, which causes the super-cowardly Smith to clutch Will in between him and Tucker, using the boy yet again as a human shield. Will gets him out of the jam by explaining to Tucker that it's true. They don't know where they are. They headed for Alpha Centauri and became lost in space, eventually crashing on this planet. Will apparently forgets that he said just a few episodes ago and returned from space that uh, they were on pre-planets. Right, yeah. It comes and goes. Selective memory. Mm -hmm. Tucker seems to buy it for the moment. He asks if they have a colony on the planet, but Smith tells him no. Just a small party of seven stranded galactic castaways. Then the pirate roughly orders his buckos, Smith and Will at gunpoint, to lead him back to their campsite, while leaving John and Don trapped back in his ship for the moment. And that made me wonder if he knew that they were captured in his ship. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting because now I'm getting a mixed vibe from this pirate. At one moment, he seems like he could slit your throat. The next minute, he seems like he's just enjoying putting a little scare into them. And I think that that's a sign Salmi is playing the part just about right for this show. Yeah, he does come across a little schizoid, doesn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I also noticed is that even though he's carrying a big ray gun rifle in one hand, he's really just using Will's laser pistol as a weapon. That also gave me pause. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that, as we'll find out later. Mm. And they also kind of reference why you have that different language on the inside of the wall later on. Mm-hmm. Yep, we'll get some answers in this one. That's a good thing. It's funny how, you know, they can be so consistent and have good continuity on things like that, but then they forget things like, you know... What planet are they on and stuff like that? You would imagine maybe the actors would at least pipe up and say, wait a minute, we know we're on pre-planets. I just said that on my favorite episode three episodes ago or whatever, but he doesn't. Yeah. And at that point, what are they going to do? Run back and rewrite the script? I don't think so. And you have to remember, they wrote this script at the same time, probably even before the uh, episode on Return for Space aired. So there's no way that the writer would know. 
yeah. that he did it. Because I'll bet you, without knowing, uh, that it's a different writer that wrote that episode, wasn't it? It was. But you'd think that that's one of the jobs of the story editor is to maintain continuity, if if at all possible. But he's Yeah, probably... but, but knowing Uncle Irwin, the story editor for this series is the same story editor who's doing Land of the Giants and Forge of the Bottom of the Sea <laughs> <laughs> and Time Tunnel. So he can't possibly keep it all straight. Uh, uh, Tucker and his captives arrive unnoticed on the edge of the Robinson camp for a little recon of the area. We can see that the robot is standing watch while Penny and Marine are outside tending the hydroponic garden. And I wondered why the robot sensors didn't pick up their presence, but maybe he might have been giving his computers a rest. Yeah, the robot doesn't seem like a very good watchdog at this point now, does he? Not really, no. The captain takes it in and then instructs Will to go tell the others that if they comply with his demands, nothing will happen to his hostage, Zack. His demands are simple. Just a little food, blankets, a box of cigars, and some cheese, of all things. Not outrageous for a man who, we'll find out later, has been out in space for decades. Before Will can shove off, Smith pipes up to inform Tucker that since he's not the most popular fellow with Robinsons, as a hostage, he would prove most inadequate. This was classic Dr. Smith. Don't take me, take the boy. Yeah, it was classic (laughs) Smith, all right. But in another way, it was very unlike him because it was so brutally honest. Because mm-hmm. he, he knows he's not popular with the Robinsons, and if Tucker had managed to state his demands to somebody like Major West, we all know what West would have said. He'd say, <laughs> take Smith and leave the real cheese. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point. Tucker gets the hint and decides to hold Will as hostage and sends Smith forward to parlay with the Robinsons. So as the act is nearing a close, Smith scurries into camp, but says nothing to Maureen about the present danger. She's curious about the whereabouts of the others. He assures her they'll be along shortly, but at the moment, he has urgent business with the robot. Once the others are out of earshot, Smith whispers to his insensitive friend that there's a dangerous man around the hill with the boy, who's going to kill us all unless you kill him first. The robot objects that the Prime Directive prevents him from doing harm to humans. He hisses, The Directive is cancelled. Now get on with it. So the robot obeys and starts to lumber forth on his seek-and-destroy mission. I love this part, by the way. I thought it was, you know, I agreed with Smith. I thought Smith was doing good at this point. Mm-hmm. Underhanded, yes. And it disturbed me that he was able to just turn off his concern for Will. <laughs> you know, sort of like, I don't care if Will's in between or not. Go and kill the pirate. Right. Then we cut to the other side of the rocks, where the impatient Tucker tells Will to take a look and see what's keeping that there Smith fellow. When Will looks around the rocks, he sees the robot marching towards them. He gasps and turns back towards Tucker, who, seeing the expression on the boy's face, realizes that something's wrong. The pirate jumps up to see for himself and exclaims, Balls of fire! It's a man of ten! Before we go to commercial, we see the robot extend his arms in their direction and shoot off a blast of his 50,000 volts of electrical charge. Did he get his man? I guess we'll have to wait to find out. Kurt. Yeah, at this point, the Russian roulette wheel of Smith's personality is starting to land on deadly black instead of silly yellow, so things are getting most interesting. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. KNXT Channel 2, Los Angeles. When we return from the break to start Act 2, the robot is still firing his electrical bolts in the direction of Will and the pirate. It's been a long commercial break with all that power. (laughs) Will grabs Tucker by the arm and pulls him behind the rocks before he gets zapped, but that near miss only enrages the buccaneer. As they crouch behind the safety of the boulder, Will suggests they run, but Tucker's not about to flee from a walking hunk of wash boiler. Instead of running, he stands up and facing the robot, gives another fierce two-fingered whistle. (whistles) Yeah, good. 
In a blink of the eye, the robot collapses, and old Captain Tucker has his power pack in hand. Little Nick pulled another one of his slippery gypsy pickpocket tricks, just like with Will's laser. And Will's astonished, but there's no time to linger. Tucker's ready to settle accounts with Smith. Next, we cut back to Tucker's ship. Some time has passed because now night has fallen. John and Don are stuck inside, and the two men are busy fiddling with some of the control panels. And this scene made me think the writer wasn't doing much to burnish John's reputation as the all-knowing professor, because he says, there must be some control that operates this hatch. (laughs) Like maybe the big wheel on the... (laughs) (laughs) That would be the first hint I would have thought. But when looking at a closed door and in doubt, usually the door knob is usually the best place to start. (laughs) Yeah. But a very frustrated Don asks, yeah, but which one? And John comes back with, well, just try them all. Sure. And blow us up with the ship. And John gets sarcastic with the major. You got any better ideas? Go ahead. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, at least he wasn't in the White House, you know, near the nuclear launch button or whatever. But, you know, when Smith tried this logic in the Keeper's ship, he unleashed monsters from all corners of the galaxy. So how quickly we forget those lessons. Mm, exactly. Don must be overtired. He reluctantly says, okay, here goes. But the very first switch he flips causes what sounds like an explosion. And the whole ship starts to shake violently. Oops. He quickly switches it off, things calm down, and I was disappointed that he didn't even give John at least an I told you so look. Instead, he just goes on to the next switch and starts flipping more buttons, and then finally... (laughs) Well, that one almost blew us up, so let's see what the next one does. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So then, finally, he he hits the right button, and the... uh, hatch opens and then we get our old professor know-it-all john who just smiles and says there you are (laughs) yeah let's hope no one ever gives john a scalpel and needs an operation this guy has a serious i know it everything issue he does and don's like well let's get out of here which they do and quickly but just like my boys they did forget to turn the lights off after they left i guess they aren't paying the power bills no and uh, it doesn't bother them whether the robot blows another fifty thousand watts during the commercial break or not (laughs) exactly next we cut to a scene inside a cave where captain tucker has made his hideout so it appears they already made their trip to the robinson camp and were able to secure the items that tucker was demanding nick is quietly perched on a rock next to the pirate who's reclined on a space blanket enjoying a bite of cheese i also spotted an open box full of cigars next to tucker uh yep like we say they brought everything on that ship and will is cooking some kind of food in a pot over a campfire. Now you have to admit, it did kind of make sense that they still have a full box of cigars after all this time because none of the Robinsons actually smoke. But on the other hand, why would they take them with them if they're not going to (laughs) smoke? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Well, the scene is very homey looking and the exchange will set the tone for the relationship between Will and the captain for the course of this tale. It's also worth noting that this episode makes generous use of tracked music from the Fox Library and it works well in these sentimental scenes that play out between Will and Tucker. The boy asks the captain if he's really a pirate. Are you really a pirate, Mr. Tucker? I lad. Why did you become a pirate? What's wrong with being a pirate? It's wrong, that's all. Well, now, that depends on what kind of a pirate. Is there more than one kind? Of course there are. What kind of pirate are you? Well, I'm an honest pirate. An honest pirate? I ain't ever heard of honest pirates. They're kind of like Robin Hood. You heard tell about Robin Hood. You mean they rob from the rich and they give to the poor? Of course we do. Have you given a lot to the poor, Mr. Tucker? Oh, uh, Well, now, we're sort of like this. 
I've been looking for a feller who's poor. I mean, real downright dirt poor. When I find this downright dirt poor feller, I'm going to make him happy with my treasure. Yeah, this guy's beginning to sound like some of those uh, social justice warriors of the day, you know, who are out to stop the world from destroying itself from global warming. <laughs> but they all have automobiles and live in air-conditioned houses. <laughs> Fly around on private jets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, that word treasure excites Will. You mean you've got a treasure? Who jumps up and runs over to Tucker. Well, now, of course I got a treasure. Every self-respecting pirate's got a treasure. And mine's as big as any of them. Boy, I wish I could be a pirate. I mean an honest one like you. You work at it, my boy. And one of these days, you will be how are them beans coming along? Will dishes them both a plateful, and they eat their food. Now, to me, Kurt, Tucker seems a lot less dangerous now, a lot less. In fact, his whole demeanor has softened since we saw him in the first part of the story. What did you think? I, I'm starting to like this horror pirate, uh, despite mm. me better judgment. Arg. Then we're back at the Jupiter 2. Maureen comes rushing out of the ship in a panic, calling to John, who's just arrived back in camp along with Don. We can also see Dr. Smith wordlessly taking this all in with a concerned look on his face. Maureen's upset, she says, because Will's been taken hostage by that terrible man. And now Smith takes his chance to chime in. I did everything I could to dissuade him. I even offered myself up in the brave little fellow's place, but the rogue wouldn't have none of me. (laughs) John is extremely confused, and from the look on his face, so is Don. Remember... They've been stuck in that capsule all day, and they have no idea who or what they're talking about. But Smith clarifies. Tucker, the pirate. Certainly you've heard of him. Mm. Okay, well that makes sense. Not. And despite the frantic music and the straight way that everyone was playing it, I do think this scene was intended to be funny in sort of like an absurd screwball comedy fashion, especially when Smith said that last line of, certainly you've heard of him. Yeah. Anyway, we don't linger long there because next we cut back to the pirate cave and Will is finishing up his dinner. Tucker says it's time for them to get some shut-eye, but unfortunately he's going to have to tie Will up because, of course, he's the captain's prisoner. And how can he get a good night's sleep if he has to keep an eye on his captive all night? Will isn't happy about that and asks, what if he promises not to escape? Tucker makes a show of considering it and says, there's one possible way, but oh, it's too terrible for Will to even consider. Even though being tied up all night most likely will lead to loss of circulation, cramps, and even sickness. And I really enjoyed the expressions that Bill Moomy used during the scene. He really did look like a sincere 10-year-old boy trying to figure out a way to avoid being tied up without violating any of his family's values. Uh, Values, you mean like uh, being the pirate's punk? (laughs) I'll have to tie you up there unless... Oh, no, no, you wouldn't want to do that there. Wouldn't want to do what? Oh, it's too terrible. I wouldn't ask you to do that. Nice boy like you. I bet you go to Sunday school and such. No, I I wouldn't dare ask you to do anything so awful. Yeah, he did have that line about Sunday school, too. Yeah, that was pretty Yeah, pretty I was funny. thinking, you know, I hope this wasn't a Catholic Sunday school, you know, with <laughs> yeah. a pirate priest. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. At this point, Will's ready to consider whatever terrible thing Tucker is suggesting, which is to take the pirate's oath. Will suggests that maybe he could take a little temporary pirate's oath just to ensure that he won't run away and 
Tucker's never heard of such a thing as a little pirate's oath, but he agrees to cook something up. Although he does tell Will that it'll have to be signed in blood, Will just so happens to have a safety pen with him. No walkie-talkie, but he's got a safety pen. Tucker says, by rights, it should be done with a cutlass or a dagger, but this'll have to do. The oath that he has Will recite was pretty good, but it was clearly something that he was more or less making up on the spot. It passed muster with Will, and after the deal is done, they both settle down for a good night's sleep. That whole bit was very nostalgic for boomers, especially the boys. We all love to play pirates, but we also love to play cowboys and Indians. And the best part of that game was taking the Indian's blood oath, where you would prick your thumb and mix your blood with a blood brother. You know, it's, it's pretty sad that that entire tradition is now basically verboten because of the danger of AIDS. You know, I mean, when you yeah. watch this scene, you're sitting there going, you know, what? Huh? But that was back in 1966, so it was still safe. And the whole time I'm sitting there doing the calculus in my mind, well, wait a minute, but if this is 1997, you know, this would have been after Rock Hudson died of AIDS. So you just want to scream out your TV, no, Will, don't. No blood sports with pirates. But that, that whole tradition is now lost. It's sad. It is sad. So first, before they can go to bed, Will gets on his knees to say his bedtime prayers. So this is also out of time, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then he glances over at Tucker, who's already made himself comfortable. Will asks the captain if pirates say their prayers. He answers that he wouldn't have a shipmate who didn't say his prayers before bed. This makes Will grin, and then his expression changes to a silent nod for Tucker to follow suit. The pirate gets the hint and dutifully gets on his knees, folds his hand, and the two quickly finish their business and then get tucked in. Before the scene ends, Will asks Tucker one last question. Do pirates have to wash behind their ears and take lessons and mind their older sisters? No, no. Of course they don't. This is just what Will wanted to hear. Tucker then turns to little Nick and tells him to keep a weather eye out. Nick then goes into a little bit of pirate parrot talk straight out of Treasure Island, complete with some blow the man down. (laughs) And that brought a grin to my face as well. That, that whole thing was a great scene. In fact, this is where the episode crosses the Robinson Rubicon, if you will. It completely won me over to Tucker during that scene. Will was very precocious and an adorable character, but he's actually upstaged by Tucker here, and we can't get enough of the guy. It was a great scene, and it was a turning point in the episode, I agree. Next, we see Tucker and Will back on the path to the spaceship, when suddenly Nick starts to whistle a warning of danger ahead. That's cool. Tucker tells Will not to move or say a word, as if he recognizes whatever it is that Nick is warning them about. Then we hear the sound of a jet or rocket passing close by overhead. The ground shakes with the impact of something nearby. It's some kind of smoking alien missile or probe that's landed in the nearby sand. Using the cover of the ever-present rock formations, Tucker and Will move a little bit closer to get a better look. I thought that device when we saw it was kind of cool looking. What did you think about it? Oh, this episode is getting better and better. That robotic spy missile is very similar to those evil space probes that Darth Vader launches and lands on the Rebels' frozen planet and the Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very cool. You remember that one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because there's like this three-dimensional eye sensor on top of it that's sort of scanning the area, presumably for our protagonist. Yeah, and we'll see that same eye in a variety of other episodes, like <laughs> yes. the Cave of Wizards and stuff like that. Exactly. But I also like look like high-pressure steam or gases sort of escaping from the point of impact, so I thought it was, it was well done all around. Mm-hmm. 
Tucker says, it ain't seen us yet, which apparently is a good thing because the creepy music from the derelict is telling me this is definitely not a friendly visitor to the planet. Crouching behind the boulders, the pair, and don't forget little Nick too, continue to observe the probe's rotating eye. Will asks Tucker, what is it? He explains that it's the eyes and nose of a particular enemy that's been tracking him clear across space. They'll have to scuttle it before it gets them. So clearly they are in danger. By this point, Tucker is now acting more like a protector to Will than a kidnapper. That missile, on the other hand, is another matter entirely. So I found myself starting to join Team Tucker, which is how I think Will is feeling as well. Well, for me, I was a little conflicted because he he didn't really seem like he was protecting Will very much when he sent him out to confront the probe. That seemed more like a Smith move, but there's more to it than that, as we're about to find out. Yeah. Well, the boy asks what the probe wants, and Tucker quickly replies that it's out to steal his treasure. After all, there's pirates in the universe who aren't as honest as he is. As the act is drawing to a close, Will asks Tucker what he wants him to do. Not much, really. Just walk into that clearing and distract that cutthroat alien probe for a minute so he can scuttle it. (laughs) And Will seems less than thrilled, but Tucker assures him that if he walks straight out and quietly, that thing won't bother him. Then he adds... Ship's discipline, follow your orders. And he did swear the pirate's oath. Yeah, that's right. This is uh, very reminiscent of Smith sending him out to the uh, invaders of the fifth dimension. Courage and fortitude, courage and fortitude, (laughs) courage and fortitude. Exactly. So I may have spoken too soon about being on Team Tucker. Before we go to commercial, looking very unsure, Will follows his orders. He slowly and silently enters that clearing, and it only takes a moment for it to pick up his presence and turn its evil eye toward the defenseless boy. With the music building to a crescendo, we then start to hear a very weird pulsing electronic sound effect and a wide beam shoots out from that eye, freezing Will in its tracks. We cut to his frozen expression, then back to the probe, and then, when you think it couldn't get any worse, a pair of antenna pop out of the top of the eye. Is this the end? Is Will going to be disintegrated, or just have his brain wiped clean, Kirk? Destroy now? No, wait. <laughs> For these words from our sponsor. Exactly. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Support for this non-profit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return from the break to start Act 3, Will is still frozen in that alien probe's ray, all wide-eyed and unmoving, when we finally see that Tucker has worked his way around some rocks to the blind side of the device. I'm hoping he can do something soon, because we have no idea if that machine's ray is harming him. Yeah, we'll find out in the next few days if uh, Will ends up buying all the products that CBS was advertising during the commercial break the entire time he was being hypnotized. (laughs) Sure enough, Tucker approaches the thing with a large rock in his hands and smacks Smashes its sensor eye to smithereens. This deactivates its ray and releases Will from the power of the probe, not a moment too soon. Now, this part was an area of concern for the CBS sensors who requested that Will not be shown to be in any kind of pain or agony, but they didn't have to worry because when you're paralyzed, you can't feel any pain at all as your brains are being sucked out. So that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, funny you should say that. I was thinking the exact opposite, like he was being hypnotized to do something he wouldn't otherwise do, like maybe buy all those products. But if you think about it, 
The CBS logo looks exactly like that creepy eye on the oh, space probe. Oh, good call. I did not even think about that. That's right. Talk about product placement. Jeez. <laughs> the all-seeing eye. Well, gosh. They were not only hypnotizing Will to buy the products, they were hypnotizing us. Oh, that's great. Oh, that never even occurred to me. Beautiful. Well, with the probe destroyed... Tucker rushes over to the boy, then asks him if he's all right. Me bucko. Will seems a little foggy at first, but comes out of it, asking what happened. He tells him that they met the enemy broadside to broadside and beat him fair and square. And that brings a smile to Will's face, but the captain cautions, this is just the first engagement. Uh-oh. Will's all in now. He's calling Tucker captain and snapping back with, yes, sir, it is every command. Tucker then says that they don't want to worry his folks by going, on and on about their run-in with the probe. And I was thinking, again, this sounds like a lot like Dr. Smith with his little secrets, no? Oh, yeah, well, we can't have uh, panty-waist pirates now, can we, matey? No. No. uh But Tucker's got a different line, he asks Will. Are we worried? Course not. A brave front and a cheerful smile, says Captain Tucker, and Will looks very cheerful indeed. He's now an honest pirate, and they've already had an exciting adventure all before lunch. It's moments like this where you're reminded just how lonely it must be for Will to be on this this planet. There's nobody his age, mature-wise, there's Smith, you know, but, right. uh, you know, Smith doesn't really play with Will. I mean, it, it must be a pretty bad existence for the boy, you know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's got his sister, but, you know, little boys don't really want to play with their sisters all the time. Like, Yeah, especially when there's that, that pretty significant age gap between him and Penny. I mean, it didn't. So. She wants to play dolls and with her animals. You know, it's kind of like me and my sister. She she was always busy either raising rats or pigeons or, you know, some strange animal or reading, you know, or listening mm. to her phonograph. She didn't want to play with me, and I, I'm sure it was the same way with, with Will. Yeah. Well, he was very excited to meet the little boy and the sky is falling. But then, of course, he gave him his deadly germ. So that didn't work out too well either, did it? No. But we got yeah. another boy coming up here soon. Yeah. So off they go. Will back to the cave and Tucker back to the Robinsons camp to negotiate. As they start heading forth in that sandy path, Will nonchalantly picks up Tucker's large laser rifle and casually hands it back to him. I'm thinking he's got a serious case of Stockholm Syndrome going on here. I mean, he's not even thinking about trying to escape now. He's having way too much fun palling around with this honest pirate. Tucker thanks Will, slings the rifle over his shoulder, and the three happy buccaneers head back. But is all as it seems. Well, you can make that Four pirates. Uh, I've always wanted to visit Stockholm, and this Mother Tucker is one cool dude, so sign me up. It's the pirate's life for me. Yo-ho. Back at the Jupiter camp, John is briefing Don and Marine from a map on the search plan. While Dr. Smith is busy working on the robot, John's certain that Will and Tucker couldn't have gone too far. He asks Smith if he's ready just as the doctor reactivates the robot. He replies that he's ready to follow Commandant John's orders. But when John points out Smith's search area, he balks. At your service, Mon Commandant. Yeah. This will be your search area. Aye? Yes, right there. But surely you know that I plan to devote all my energies to the protection of the ladies. The robot will share in the search. He's quite accomplished, I assure you. Oh, Dr. Smith. Uh, Not another word, dear lady. Don't thank me. It's embarrassing. You are a coward. Madam, are you implying that I'm afraid to go on this search? Are you suggesting that I would refuse to lay down my life for the sake of that dear little lad so unfortunately missing from our midst? Oh, my dear madam. Don't you dear madam me. In this matter, I have a heart of steel. A veritable heart of... Oh, oh, there he is again. Oh. 
Then he once again faints, collapsing face down into the sand, just like at the start of this story. Tucker approaches the Robinsons and takes a look at the collapsed Smith and remarks that he should really do something about his nerves. He introduces himself to the Robinsons and assures them that Will's fine. In fact, they've become good friends in the short time they've been acquainted. That being said, he's still Tucker's captive for the time being, and Don seems ready to tackle Tucker, but John restrains him. Tucker wouldn't do any harm to the little nipper, but as Don seems to be making another threatening gesture, Tucker warns that if anything happens to him, he can't be blamed for what might happen to the lad, being that he's tied up and all. John once more calls off Don because, as he says... Tucker's holding all the cards. John asks what Tucker wants in exchange for getting their son back. Tucker demands that they fix his damaged ship, but of course, they can't because it has an alien drive. Tucker has the answer. Just provide the parts and he'll show them where they go. What about Will? Tucker agrees to turn him loose just as soon as he's ready for blastoff. Fair enough, but John asks how much time they have. Take all the time you need, as long as it's within one hour. Okay, but how will they find him when they're ready? Captain Tucker tells him to send Smith along with a white flag because unlike John and Don, Smith can be counted on to stay a coward and not start getting brave. He's got that right. Indeed. Before he departs back to his hideout, Tucker kneels down to say goodbye to the still passed out Zack. Shaking his head, he adds comically before he leaves the Robinson's camp that he's never seen a man with such terrible nerves. So true. (laughs) I was kind of surprised uh, Zachary didn't turn around and get up at that point, but... uh... No, he stayed passed out at that one. Next, we're back in Tucker's hideout, and Will's fascinated with the tales he's spinning about a planet called Valeran, where the people look like humans, only instead of being born, they're hatched from an egg. Will wants to find out more about Tucker's treasure and how you take over a treasure ship. And now Tucker's really excited. He starts an animated description of blasting, plundering, and making the enemy walk out the plank of the spaceport. That last bit is a little hard for Will to stomach. He lets on that he doesn't think he could do something like that. Even if they're not human? Will would like to say yes, but he doesn't think he could ever get used to killing anyone. I guess he's just not fit to be a real pirate. Tucker says that is a problem, but then he tells Will the next time they go out in a pirate voyage, they won't kill anyone. They'll just disable the enemy's drive, steal all their valuables, and leave them with enough gear to get it repaired. (laughs) Let's hope they don't put up a fight. Oh, but Will brightens and says, hey, that's great. Yeah, I guess thievery isn't quite as bad as murder, but I'm not sure how that got past the CBS censors. Yeah, that's a good point. CBS almost scuttled that earlier episode of Return to Space because Will stole the bottle of carbon tech to save his family, you know. But here they seem okay with him pirating an entire ship so long as he leave them with a few parts that may by chance actually allow them to survive if they're lucky. Mm. If they're lucky, exactly. Anyway, just at that moment, we hear the timid voice of Dr. Smith from outside calling, Hello? Is anyone out there? Tucker tells Will to wait inside while he goes out to see what Smith wants. Emerging from his hideout, we hear, but don't see Dr. Smith at first. Tucker calls out, Over here, Zack! Which causes Smith to come right out from behind the rocks with the white flag of truce. And when Smith catches sight of Tucker's laser rifle pointing at his face, he nearly faints again. Now, from my perspective, this is about as frightened as I've seen Harris play Dr. Smith, at least that I can remember right now. Did it seem a little bit over the top to you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, not only did we not see him at first with his voice, but all we see is that little white flag from behind the rock, you know. Yeah. So Tucker has to literally coax him out. So the roulette wheel has landed on Silly Yellowsmith again, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
It's getting old for Tucker, too. He tells Smith not to go fainting again because he ain't going to hurt him. After Tucker lowers his rifle, that seems to calm Smith down for the moment because, as he says, he's allergic to weapons pointing at him. (laughs) Smith informs Tucker that the Robinsons have accepted his terms. They will help him repair his ship under one condition, that he and Will come back and make his headquarters at the Jupiter II until his ship is back in working order. Professor Robinson gives his word that he will carry out the terms of the agreement without any tricks or interference. Tucker thinks about it and asks Smith if he'd take John's word on it if it were him. Certainly not. That settles it. Tucker accepts the bargain, which confuses Smith because he'd advised against accepting the offer, blowing a huge puff of cigar smoke into Zack's face. Tucker explains that he figures a fellow can't go wrong if he does the opposite of anything Dr. Smith recommends. It was a funny scene. It was funny. It was very funny. With that, Tucker strikes a threatening pose again, points his gun at Smith, advising him to skedaddle back before he gets another fainting smell. You know, before he does that, when Smith says, Certainly not! You know, you really, for a flash second there, you really hate Dr. Smith. You know, it's sort of like, you know, oh my God! Uh, Because all the way up until that point, they seem like the Robinsons are being very congenial. Uh, about Tucker, even though they've kidnapped their kid. So demanding that they allow the kid to come back while they're fixing the ship was the first moment where this is kind of getting back to parental reality. And then Smith tries to scuttle it. So thank God that um, Tucker, you know, uh, knows how to read Smith and does the reverse psychology bit. Oh, I know it is. It's really underhanded that Smith does that. I just, jeez. Well, the pirate seems very pleased with himself as he runs back into the cave. Will said he heard it all and he's concerned. Does that mean they're not going pirating after all? No, says Tucker. Don't worry. He'll be taking his little matey along as soon as his ship's fixed, which won't be long. Oh, now, that was a little chilling for all the parents in the audience because it suggests that Tucker may actually be thinking about double-crossing the Robinsons and kidnapping Will once the ship gets fixed. Did that occur to you? I mean, that's what occurred to me. I guess I'm too much on Team Tucker. I was just taking him at his word that uh, he was going to comply with the agreement, and I thought he was more or less playing Will along. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my big whole concern with his whole bargain initially. It's like, uh, I'm going to keep the kid until my ship's ready. You know, yeah. if, if, if you've kidnapped my kid, the last thing I'm going to do is, you know, help fix your plane. Right. You know, and especially if the kid's on the landing field with you, you know, it's sort of, no, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, and and it's also kind of funny that Will was listening to this whole conversation between Tucker and Smith, and he was concerned about the fact that he won't be able to go with Tucker (laughs) rather than the fact that Smith was, you know, telling him not to trust the father, you know? Right. Hmm. Well, we're going to see Will is really spitting with Tucker. I mean, yes. we're going to see that in the next scene, obviously, because we cut back to the Jupiter campsite where the family is enjoying the evening meal. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first scene in this episode where Judy and Penny make an appearance. I can't say that I blame the parents for hiding the girls from the pirate who's already managed to, you know, kidnap one kid, the boy, no telling what they might do if they saw the females, you know. Mm, so that yeah. was... That made total sense to me. Now that you mention it, it's kind of surprising that there was no mention of girls in any of his demands uh-huh. <laughs> earlier. You would think he would have he would have asked that. I've been in space a long time, be matey. <laughs> yeah. These cigars aren't going to quite <laughs> fulfill the need. <laughs> 
Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> yeah. Maureen is serving coffee as the robot announces, Company is coming. Hmm. Will and Tucker saunter into camp. Will seems like a changed boy, that's for sure, because his parents are thrilled to see him, but he acts like he didn't miss them a bit. Maureen's not happy about this at all. She says, Why, he couldn't care less. That's not my son. It's a complete stranger. But what really gets her goat is when Will offers Tucker some of that space meatloaf and adds, Mom's a pretty good cook. (laughs) And Maureen's like pretty good and john calms her down yeah well she's right to be mad i mean she slaved over a hot computer pressing that button telling it to make their food so you know where's will's appreciation indeed i mean she's probably got carpal tunnel at this point (laughs) pushing all those keys how quickly we forget how much harder it is on the robinson's plan you know and at 200 years in star trek they only need to say food you know but back in these days the pioneering days they still had to press the button Probably had to type in meatloaf or something. Yeah, just imagine the calluses on the end of those fingers. Sheesh. I know. Well, then we get a nice little after-dinner conversation with Tucker, who's puffing on his cigar right next to an annoyed Smith. He begins to tell the Robinsons the incredible story of how a human who was born in 1858 has managed to stay so remarkably well-preserved. It turns out he was back in Puxatawney, PA, crossing the train tracks in 1876, when some aliens called Tellurians scooped him up with a force ray into their flying saucer, then took him off into the cosmos. They kept him in a time freezer for most of that time. That's why he's still alive after all these years. It's an incredible story and it sort of makes sense why Tucker acts like a man from a different age. With that, they break from the table to see about getting his ship in order. Later that night, we're back at Tucker's ship. Will is working outside on some equipment while John and Don are helping inside with the repairs. They try to get Tucker to explain the principle of his ship, but he reveals that he really doesn't understand the alien technology. He just pushes buttons to make it go. He can make some simple repairs, but other than that, not much. Yeah, that's like me with my car, you know. If I get stuck on the road, I call AAA. But as Hapgood pointed out many episodes ago, space isn't like traveling on a highway. If you get stuck in space, there is no help. You're screwed. It's like the Mile High Club, only literally. Mm. Just then we see that a serious-looking Dr. Smith has arrived outside the ship and starts to eavesdrop on the conversation. It quickly becomes obvious that Tucker's ship has a kind of hyperdrive that would enable them to travel across the galaxy back to Earth in mere seconds. Meanwhile, back outside, Smith is very interested in this development. He pauses and is shown picking up a piece of gear. Hmm. Back inside, Don comments that even though Tucker's ship is small, they could use it to shuttle back and forth to Earth, saving every one of the castaways. Once they're all back home, the finest minds on Earth could reverse-engineer the alien technology, which would enable them to build a fleet of starships to explore the universe. John is excited and asks Tucker, How about it? Well, I'll just have to think about that. And I was wondering if he really wanted to go back to Earth at all, because John and Don seemed way more excited about the prospect than he did. Well, maybe he's got an old girlfriend back home that he's anxious to avoid. Mm. I mean, after all, she'd be like 140 years old by now, right? With that kind of age <laughs> difference, can you blame him? She would literally be an old girlfriend. Wouldn't yeah. <laughs> an she? old, old girlfriend. Yeah. He walks outside, leaving the two men alone, and Don suggests that they hijack the ship, but John brings him back down to Earth. They don't even know how to run that thing. Heck, they had a hard enough time figuring out how to get out of it. Yeah, that's for sure. John should have used that line. But joking about the limits of his intelligence isn't really in his personality profile. It's it's rather odd that they were hell-bent on not stealing 
the arrogant keeper ship, but are seriously contemplating stealing from an honest pirate like good old Captain Tucker. Good old Captain Tucker. How quickly we forget our scruples just one episode later. As we near the end of the act, Smith decides this is his opportunity to come inside, which causes Don to correctly suspect that he's been listening in on their conversation. Of course, he claims he only just arrived. He hands over the part he'd picked up outside and then goes back out to confer with Captain Tucker. Smith now knows that Tucker's ship has the means to get him back to Earth in seconds, and he can't let this golden opportunity pass as so many others already have. He calls out to the captain, Now what is it you want, Zack? And Smith is clearly offended again at being called Zack. You can see it on his face, but he tries to refrain from complaining about it. But I did love the expression that Jonathan Harris made and then caught himself as he began to make his pitch for a deal with the pirate. Oh, I thought we might walk together, perhaps exchange points of view to our mutual benefit. Tucker asks what he means. I could make you a very rich man back on Earth, sir. Mm, But of course, we're not on Earth. Oh, but you have the means of getting us there. Yes. I should mention, this is one of the scenes that wound up being cut for time. As originally written, Tucker goes on to explain that he really doesn't know how to navigate the ship accurately, and that instead of Earth, he might just as well wind up on Ganymede or another alien world. And this would have explained why he didn't agree to John's proposal to go back to Earth, and even how it happened that Tucker wound up on Preplanus unintentionally. Wow, that's interesting. I wish Mm -hmm. they had included those edited scenes on, you know extras for the dvd or something yeah that would be nice to see some of that stuff unaired outtakes or whatever wouldn't you love to have seen the edited scenes from attack of the monster plants but you know unfortunately they didn't even film the ones where the judy dematerializes yeah yeah that would have been cool as soon as smith finishes his last statement about tucker having the means to get them back to earth nick begins to squawk another warning that danger is approaching we hear the sounds of an alien ship zooming in from above Tucker turns instantly terrified, and so does Smith. Captain Tucker, what's the matter? Run, run, you blasted idiot, run! Tucker does run, leaving Smith to look up in the starry sky to see a fast-moving spaceship closing in, perhaps even spitting cosmic dust and destruction, who knows. And I also heard Nick chiming in to tell Smith to run, which I thought was funny. That bird looked pretty frightened, and it was probably squirting oil. (laughs) Yeah. As we go to commercial, we get a nice close-up of that spinning spherical ship as it starts to slow down, which made me think it was almost hovering right above the spot where Smith was standing before he too runs off in terror. It was cool. It was cool, and it was a new one. I don't remember ever seeing that design before or after. Uh Uh-uh. No, it was neat, and, you know, I love those alien cutaway shots. The space probe, now this, but the best is yet to come. Oh, yes. Well, it's clearly not a friendly ship, but we'll have to wait until we get back from break to find out exactly what sort of danger this silver menace from space means to our little band of space pioneers and Captain Tucker. Coming to a theater near you. Man overboard, button hatchet. An adventure as big as the cosmos. Now, you just hold on, because I don't know what's on your mind, but we've got a bargain, remember? The treasure of Signet 4 has been plundered. What were you doing on Signet 4? Why, I was there on business. But the booty comes with a curse. 
I could make you a very rich man back on Earth, sir. Well, well, we ain't back there on Earth. A deadly curse that can follow men to the far reaches of space. You go tearing in there with your blaster or blasting away and carry it on until the enemy gives up and they throw down their arms. And then you make them walk the plank out the spaceport. <laughs> Pirates of the Constellations, the curse of Signet 4. Stay back! You don't think old Tucker is gonna hurt you, do you? Starts October 16th. Tickets available now. You ask anyone about Alonzo B. Tucker, they'll tell you he ain't got a shred of harm in him. When we return from commercial to start the final act of the episode, we see Dr. Smith inside Tucker's ship describing to John and Maureen the enormous alien spaceship that frightened off Captain Tucker, who's now running for the hills. Will is now the one eavesdropping on the conversation outside. When he hears that his pirate friend might be in trouble, he takes off running too. John suggests they all return to the Jupiter to set up defenses against whatever alien menace might be in the area. But then Maureen notices Will has disappeared. They call into the night for the boy, but he's long gone. Bringing up the rear, Dr. Smith emerges from Tucker's little escape capsule to announce in disgust, Oh, the pain! The pain! Will's headed back to the one sure spot that he thinks Tucker's likely to be, the cave. Will arrives at the entrance, which is covered in vines, and calls out. Tucker emerges quickly and covers the boy's mouth, cautioning him to stay quiet. There's apparently a terrible alien out to get him. He shuffles the boy inside the cave and asks him what he's doing there. Will says he's worried about Tucker. Tucker's touched by Will's concern. He explains that there's a deadly alien thing from Signet 4 chasing him, and Will wonders why he doesn't blast it with his nucleonic planet buster. We finally find out what that large laser rifle that Tucker's been carrying around is supposed to be. I say supposed to be because a moment later we hear the sounds of a strange creature coming near the cave. Then we see it for just a few seconds, and it appears to be this large gelatinous blob moving quickly across the ground looking for someone or something. Kurt, should we be careful for the blob? Oh yes, you should beware of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor. Mm. This isn't the scariest monster in Lost in Space by a long shot, but conceptually, it's one of the coolest. It looks like a disembodied brain, even better than fiends without a face because it's the size of a VW bug, you know, automobile. Mm-hmm. It makes some really menacing scream noises also. It's it's really cool. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. And it's definitely, it's like the same size as that, you know, the, the electrified sagebrush that was chasing after them way back when, you know, it's a, it's cool. It's clearly got Tucker frightened. When it finally moves off and away from the pirate hideout, Tucker admits to Will that the rifle he has isn't really a planet buster, nucleonic or otherwise. In fact, he has no idea what it is, only that it's valuable because he plundered it from Signet 4, and now he reckons that monster that just went by has come looking to recover it. Will's worried, but Tucker tells him, never mind, he's going to take the boy back to his folks. And next we cut back to the Jupiter 2, where the robot is standing watch alongside the force field projector. Inside the ship, Will is examining Tucker's large rifle device on a table, while the rest of the castaways are standing around him. I thought the cut to that scene was rather jarring, because one moment we're with Tucker and Will in the cave, and then the next moment we're aboard the Jupiter 2, also with Tucker and, and Will. So it, it had the feeling of like a jump cut. It was, it was strange. There was, there was no transition. Right. 
you didn't see any you saw them leave the cave but you didn't see them come into the uh, into the spaceship so it's just like whoa 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 yes we rejoin our program already in progress yeah. <laughs> you felt like the, they had skipped some film there right right and who knows maybe they had because we we've noted it's running long so John wants an explanation for what's going on from Tucker. Why is that creature chasing him, and what was he doing on Signet 4? And what sort of danger are they in? Suddenly, Will's managed to get that device working. As he's holding the device, it starts to flash. It turns out it's some kind of a projector, and it's displaying a movie image of Tucker running away from that large blob creature. Then the image vanishes. Everyone is confused. Will says he just started thinking about Captain Tucker when that cosmic movie suddenly appeared. John tells him to try again, think about his parents this time. He tries, but when he's concentrating on them, nothing happens. No image at all. Then he tries to think about Don, but again nothing. (laughs) Then Dr. Smith asks the dear boy to try and think about him, and suddenly the device begins projecting an image of Smith sneaking out of the Jupiter 2 in the night, and then sneaking on board Captain Tucker's little capsule to do what? Gee, I wonder. Mm, blast! Tucker becomes very angry. He accuses Smith of trying to steal his ship. John tells Don to check Smith's room. Hmm, check it for what? John says he thinks he knows what this all means. The device is some kind of a forecaster. It computes the thoughts and plans in people's minds and formulates possible future events by comparing them with all possible outcomes. As he says, it's science carried to impossible extremes. The science of possibilities. It's more that mumbo-jumbo stuff, but hey, it kind of makes sense in a way, you know? Yeah. Maureen replies that, well, she had plans for tomorrow, but the device didn't show anything for them at all, and that is ominous. At that moment, Don returns with a satchel from Smith's room full of spare parts that were hidden under the locker in his room. Tucker's now sure that Smith intended to steal his ship. Yeah, now see, this is interesting because he has the very part that he walked in and gave to Don and John earlier. And you have to ask Mm -hmm. yourself, why did he do that? If he was going to steal it, why not just walk away, you know, Mm -hmm. without going inside? But whatever. Well, of course, he's indignant. You had no right, Major. And then Smith appeals to John's sense of justice. Surely even in space I'm protected by the Magna Carta, as well as the Constitution, which agrees that a man's home is his castle and shall not be intruded upon. (laughs) Such a jailhouse lawyer. This is too much for Tucker, but Zack maintains that he only intended to go back to Earth for help. Don's not buying it. Sure you were. But there's no time for a trial, because at that very moment, the robot comes in with a warning of extreme danger. We soon see and hear what the cause for alarm is. It's that large, gelatinous blob heading straight for the ship, screaming in a very scary sound effect as well. Maureen takes this moment to tell John that she thinks she understands why there was only darkness when Will thought of them. That's because this is their last night. They have no future left to forecast because the creature means their doom. It's a sobering thought, but not one that John wants to linger on. This is kind of an unusual concept for Lost in Space. The thoughts that both parents might be getting eaten by the blob? That's a lot scarier than, let's say, getting burned to death by an icy comet on your spacewalk in episode two, don't you think? Yeah, but I mean, it's just the parents, too. I mean, that does kind of make you... Yeah, nobody's mentioning that Don was also left out. (laughs) Right. He's expendable. And, of course, the Slippery Smith survives for some reason. Oh, boy. Yeah. John orders Smith to send the robot out to stop the creature, and Smith questions the robot as to whether he can do it, but nothing computes. The only way to find out is through trial and error. Well, don't just stand there. Go out there and try. (laughs) He better hurry because the thing is getting closer by the minute. 
Before the robot can engage the blob alien, John mentions that he hopes the force field will hold it. Mm. <laughs> no luck. It just glides right through like a hot knife through butter. That was a cool effect, though. Didn't you like that? It was a. Oh, you know, yeah. It showed the force field, you know, at the very beginning of the blob, and as he goes through, it follows him all the way through and goes out. But I'm, I'm beginning to fall out of love with this force field. It's, it's starting to work as well as one of those green incense coils that advertise they would force the mosquitoes away at your outside gatherings. You remember those? Oh, How yes. reliable they were. They just gave a smell, you know, but they did yeah. nothing. So this force field is purely, it's, it only operates when they need it to operate for the riding. And it, more times than not, they just walk right through it now. Yeah, because the keeper walked right through it as well, didn't he? That was Yeah, that and this was is going to start to be routine. I mean, you know, whether it's IDAC or whoever, they just go right through. Yeah. Next, the robot moves towards the hideous creature. Based on what I've seen, I'm not liking his chances. Everyone's on pins and needles as the robot fires some electrical charges at the thing, but once again, it appears to have no effect. The thing is unstoppable. As it passes close by the poor old robot, we can see that there's no power they have to defeat it. They should have tried a fire extinguisher, because that's what froze the blob in the movie. Yeah. They need to show the astronauts more science fiction movies at NASA so they can learn from these things. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, they're all they're all out of fire extinguishers. They used them all in the monster plants, I guess. Well, so. Yeah, they've been using them a lot. They always do. Uh -huh. Tucker suddenly announces he's got to go out there. There's only one person in that ship the thing wants, and it's him. John says he'll be committing suicide, but Tucker can't be stopped. He's willing to sacrifice himself to save Will and his folks. He runs right out into the night, racing across the desert landscape with that blob close on his heels. It's a virtual repeat of the images that the alien forecaster device showed us earlier, so I guess that thing works. Mm -hmm. Will wants to chase after him, but his parents hold him back. Run, Captain, run. Yeah, yeah, I'm sitting there going, come on, Will. I mean, at that mm -hmm. point, you're you're thinking the father would, like, almost rip his arm off, thinking, are you crazy? You're going to run after that pirate with that monster mm -hmm. out there? Yeah. It shows how totally, uh, not only smitten, but brainwashed Will is at that point. Well, Tucker is running, but suddenly as the tension is building, Tucker trips and falls, dropping the forecaster on the ground. He doesn't take time to pick it up, but he gets back on his feet and continues to run for his life. The blob runs right over the top of it. It absorbs it because when it passes the spot where the device was laying on the ground, it's gone. And as soon as it has the device, its fierce alien screams subside and the creature moves off in another direction. It came, it saw, it absorbed. But better to absorb the rifle than good old Captain Tucker being absorbed. Yeah. John announces that it got what it came after. It only wanted the forecaster. Marine shoots John a knowing glance. They'll live another day after all, thank goodness. Everyone is relieved, so is I. Yeah, but without the forecaster, we'll never get to see scenes for next week's exciting episode, huh? Hmm. I... <laughs> I... <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention about that whole sequence has to do with something you've pointed out before. In some of those nighttime shots, they're less convincing when the, we see the painted hill cutouts that they have in front of the cyclorama lit up instead of the background. You know, In other words, I'm saying the background, the sky is all black and the hills are brightly lit, which is exactly the opposite of the way it would be in real life. Even at night, you'd see the sky... And you just see silhouettes, black silhouettes of mountains in the background. And sometimes the directors actually like the scenes like that. You'll recall back in Wish Upon a Star that was done by Sutton Raleigh. That's the way he liked to light those nighttime scenes. And I don't know why it wasn't done more often because it makes it so obvious those are just painted cutouts for the hills. So Yeah, that was pretty obvious. And those panoramas, they really only look convincing when you 
stare at them at a 90 degree angle because when you start to pan you uh, you lose the 3d effect exactly right? the background is supposed to travel at a slower speed than the foreground okay you know an object that's closer to you is going to whiz by and an object that's way back in the back is going to go at a slower speed but if the camera's panning it blows that illusion Correct. Yeah. So anyway, it's a small little point, but I I just want to mention it because you pointed that out before. Yeah, and not only that, but this when they do the close up of the um, going over the rifle, you see very closely the material that's making up that blob, and it looks like it's one of those feather filled sleeping bags. It's it's you know it, yeah. they show too much at that point, but you know they had yeah. to in order to do the cutaway. Yeah, standard def. Yeah, <laughs> I still like that monster a lot, though. I mean, he was a, it was great that they saved him to the end and. Uh, he, oh, yeah. He gets wins a lot of points. Yeah, he does. He does. So, next morning, outside the Jupiter, all is forgiven with Captain Tucker as he makes his goodbyes to our castaways. I mean, really all is forgiven. <laughs> he thanks the men for fixing his ship as Will is standing by the hatch looking very disappointed. John says he wishes they could go with him, but of course, there's not enough room on his little ship. But he does promise to send back for help if he runs into anyone out in space. Hmm. Then Tucker turns his attention to Will. He says... <sighs> Well, there. So long, matey. <laughs> I don't want you to go, Captain. Oh, well, now, that's awful nice of you. But, oh, well, old Captain Tucker, he, he's he got to be moving along uh, before he wears out his welcome. Well, then I want to go with you, and we'll be pirates like we talked about. You didn't believe that there about me being a pirate and things, did you? Shucks, I... I ain't no pirate. Why, back there in Punxsutawney, PA, where I used to live before I was picked up by them Tellurians taken up into space, they just thought of me as a town nuisance. Will's starting to tear up now. That's all. I was just a plain old town nuisance. Well, what about the treasure and everything? Treasure? Why? There ain't no treasure. Never was anything of the sort. And that's when Tucker realizes he's going to have to get a little harsher with Will. Listen, if, do you want to know the truth? I was nothing more than a petty thief all my life. That's all I was. That's the truth. Now you just stop your blubbering and go about your business and don't you be bothering me. I felt like obviously he was doing that whole act in order for Will to lose any respect he had remaining for him so that he'd be spared the impact of losing his friendship with Tucker. Oh, I, I thought he was doing it because he didn't want Will to ruin his life by aspiring to be a pirate. So he was actually destroying his own reputation to discourage Will from imitating him. It was heartbreaking. The last time I was moved like that was decades ago watching that classic vintage film Angels with Dirty Faces starring... Uh, James Cagney and Pat O'Brien. Did you see that one? Was that the one about... No, that wasn't the one about Boys Town. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was. I, yeah, Cagney plays Rocky, the hard mobster, whose boyhood friend is a priest, played by O'Brien, who happens to run that you know home for dead-end kids. And Cagney gets arrested and sentenced to death for his mobster ways. And the priest, O'Brien, warns him that all the delinquents idolize Rocky. And if he bravely dies in the electric chair, they're all going to want to grow up to be just like him. And Rocky says, well, that's too bad. He's not going to die a coward just for some lousy kids. But at the very last minute, minute as he's defiantly marching up in front of all those witnesses to sit in the electric chair he hesitates and then starts to whimper and struggles with the guards and even starts bawling like a coward and 
Oh, as all the reporters scramble to call in the new exciting headline, O'Brien stands there stoically watching his mobster friend humiliate himself for the sake of the kids, and we see a single teardrop roll down O'Brien's face as he looks up and whispers a prayer. It's it's a real tearjerker, and so is this episode. Well, it, it definitely got me, uh, too, I have to admit. It was it was really something. And I thought it was the best moment of the entire episode for Salmi. It was really great. And Bill Mooney as well. He played it very well. Amen, amen. Yeah. Well, clearing a little mist from his own eyes, Tucker turns his back on the heartbroken Will and stops by the parents to offer a last word. And you could hear a pin drop as he says, Well, uh, well I, I just thought I had to do that for the boy. We understand. Thank you. So long, everyone. Bye, Captain. Goodbye. The last shots we see are of Will being comforted by John and Maureen, staring out, watching Tucker walk out of camp, with the others saying goodbye. I think the goodbye, by the way, is the only word spoken by Angela Cartwright and Marta Kristen in the entire episode. Wow. Well, children should be seen and not heard, (laughs) especially when they're that cute. Yeah. Well, before we give our assessment, I'll mention that there was supposed to be one final shot that was cut for time, and it showed the entire family, except for Will, gathered around the Jupiter-2 scanner as we hear the sound of Tucker's ship lifting off and a blip on the screen rising. Then Will was supposed to be shown staring out the window, looking up into the sky. He gives a single wave and then turns away. Hmm. So Another good uh, clip for the DVD extras reel, if they'd only added it. Yeah. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on the Sky Pirate. Wow. Well, when they sucker punched me at the beginning of the episode with the promise of the two-headed skunk cabbage and instead we just got the tin-plated parrot, I, I thought it was all over but the screaming. At my television, that is. But it, it slowly won me over, especially in that scene in the cave with the pirate's oath and where Will asks if it's okay for an honest pirate to say his prayers and Tucker actually joins him on his knees. This episode had so much warmth and charm, you could cut it with a cutlass. Well, plus it had that cool space probe and the spooky disembodied giant brain monster thing and the future mm-hmm. projecting rifle. All that was cool. So I ended up liking this episode a lot. It's kind of like those romantic comedies where the two people hate each other when they first meet. You know, I would have been the Billy Crystal Wiseacre and, and then the sucky pirate would have been like Meg Ryan character. But slowly, you know, we warm up to each other and you end up liking each other a lot at the end. So shiver me timbers and put me down on Team Tucker. Uh, it's it's two hooks up. Two hooks up. That's good. I, yeah. Well, I have to admit, I actually enjoyed this one much more the second time I watched it prepping for our podcast. I'm not sure why, because it had those very sentimental themes and the music that I'm always a sucker for. Only thing I can think is maybe I was just a little too distracted the first time by the, you know, Salmi's pirate accent and mannerisms and everything. But when I watched it the second time, I was used to it, so I could concentrate a little bit more on the good parts of the story and the other elements that you mentioned, because they're all good. You know, one thing we should blurt out is that this was the first time that that accent was really put on full display, and it's been imitated so many times. In a lot of ways, this is like hearing a joke that you've heard a million times, and it's like a groaner, because you've you've heard that joke a million times. But when he did this... It hadn't been done a million times. This was the first time it had been done. 
So we have to kind of, you know, give credit where credit is due and realize that even though we may have been turned off by that, you know, arg bit at the time, people must have been really surprised and delighted to hear it. And that's why they've imitated it so long. Fair point. Yeah. And as I said before, though, I, I really enjoyed both Salmi and Bill Mooney's performances. I thought they were very believable in that respect. That last scene was the clincher, though, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I liked this episode a lot better than I remembered it. It does turn away from some of the more serious episodes we've watched in the first half of the season, and it follows the format that will predominate the second season of Lost in Space. What well, kind of shows that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to leave the serious episodes, and this one was done in the right way. Agreed. Yeah. Now, I should also point out that Batman is still crushing Lost in Space and the Nielsen's ratings from 7.30 to 8. And worryingly, this week, the kids weren't changing the channel back to CBS at 8 p.m. They were leaving it on ABC to watch, of all things, The Patty Duke Show. Irwin would not like that at all. Oh, my God. The Patty Duke Show over Lost in Space? How can I that know. be? Uh, some joker must have put drugs in their water supply. You know? <laughs> oh, but of course, my latest invention is composed of much more complicated human parts. Human frailties, the power of mass digestion, catalytic unexplained phenomena. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't uh, help myself. But losing some viewers to Batman is one thing, but Patty Duke, ugh, that's I totally know. unacceptable. Inexplicable, inexplicable. I mean, nothing against Patty Duke, but I mean, how does that compare to Lost in Space? Oh, it's really? the polar <laughs> opposite. Ugh. Before we finish, we get to see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. And this one starts out with some great location footage of the chariot rolling across the desert in Red Rock Canyon State Park. When they reach their destination, John, Don, and Will climb out and begin unloading the equipment. John warns that it's going to be a long, hard day of work. But before they begin, John needs to go put a warning sign up, which ominously states, Danger, keep away, ionized gas. And it's signed by John Robinson, so... We've got Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> gotta believe it, it with that signature. <laughs> right. But I was thinking already this can only end badly. And then John reaches a spot next to a looks like a swamp and he starts pounding the signpost into the soil <laughs> when suddenly some of that ionized gas starts pouring out of the ground, enveloping him in a deadly cloud of white vapors. He collapses to the ground before he can call for help. John, didn't you read your own sign? <laughs> Uh, Oh, dear. But then the freeze frame warns us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Ah, the frosted freeze frame. Yet another Batman (laughs) reference. Wild. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, you have to give credit to Uncle Irwin for this entire cliffhanger formula he's developed, leading from one episode to the very next. This is more than just a cheap way to encourage the audience to return each week. It's also a cheap way to save on time, film stock, and the tremendous expense of studio time. I mean, just think about it. The networks are paying for what? Uh, 52 minutes of original programming every week. A minute or two of that, which is used up with the music and the credit sequence at the beginning and end of each episode. But like five minutes or more of each episode is now being used up by repeating the last five minutes from the last episode. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of any other TV show that devoted that much time to recapping the events of the previous week, either before or after Lost in Space. So Uncle Irwin is kind of pulling a fast one on CBS with this formula, because I bet they had no idea 
that five or more minutes of every episode, and that's like a whopping 10% of a 50 or so remaining minute, was going to be basically wasted doing nothing but repeating footage from the last week. Mm -hmm. Not that the audience cared. I mean, I enjoyed it. But I'm sure the folks at CBS eventually caught on that this formula was more about saving Irwin money rather than entertaining (laughs) audiences. In fact, I think that's probably why they abolished this formula by the end of the third season, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I I suspect that has something more to do with the network's decision rather than Irwin's. Well, it kind of dovetails nicely with Irwin's favorite expression, time is money. Uh (laughs) Well, we're going to have to wait until next week, Kurt, to find out whether Professor Robinson will live to see another week of Nielsen's ratings. I'll be watching. I will too. So, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 19th episode of Lost in Space titled... Ghost in space. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. A good night, but I'm just warning you, this better be a real ghost and not a ghost parrot. (laughs) Don't jinx it, Kurt. Okay. (laughs) Good night. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time. Same channel.